Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. I, I do have an aptness in me at, at times to, like Spurgeon, preach a message on holiday or whatever holidays you may be on that's commemorate whatever it's commemorating. I, he's known to preach on that, like Christmas, the birth of Christ, Easter, the resurrection. I myself have done that from time to time, but not today. Words went in a different direction. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Fairly familiar psalm. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my God and my salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So Father, we're so thankful for Your Word, thankful for the Psalms. In many ways, they minister to our souls and teach us. Well, we're praying You would allow this Word to minister to those here in the way in which You've intended it and purposed it. Lord, we pray You'd help us Meet with us in the power of Your Spirit. Lord, give liberty to declare Your truth. Give ears to hear it and receive it. Hearts be helped and changed and edified. Pray Your blessing upon us now for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. Well, I opened my Bible Monday morning from my devotional reading to this psalm. And uh, by the time I finished it, I felt burdened from the Lord to preach it. And this passage just has happened to meet me as this mounting burden has been growing and growing over the whole subject of depression and anxiety, which I have increasingly been facing over the last six to eight months. In fact, I just met with somebody Friday. Same issue. And as I've wrestled with this subject, 
and I have wrestled with it and prayed and read and inquired with pastors and medical professionals seeking to better understand this, seeking to look at it from different angles, still left with unanswered questions. The Lord providentially plopped this passage into my lap. Not just plopped it, but thankfully has given me some help on the subject, particularly the subject of depression. And that's what I want to talk about today. Depression and how to handle it biblically. How to look at it biblically. That sounds like a great Easter message, right? Depression. Listen, this is where we live. This is reality. Depression. I think we, we will discover if we give some thought to it. It does lie much closer to Easter than we may be inclined to think. In fact, I'm convinced one of the greatest problems with depression is a failure to see it in light of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get into the text, I think it's important that we define our term, especially in this day, this term depression. Because I want us to think about this biblically. And as we're desiring to handle the matter biblically, we need to define it biblically. And we already run into a bit of a crossroads even in the definition of the word. Because in all actuality, depression is not a biblical term per se. Now, yes, some of you might be sitting here with a very, a very new modern translation that's adapted the use of the term depression. I only know of two of them. I think it's the Net Bible and uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Most translations use the word cast down, downcast, discouraged, even despair. Depression is a newer term, a newer term, sadly, a term that's largely been taken over by the medical profession, therefore made a clinical term to describe presumed, a presumed disease or disorder, an illness. The American Psychiatric Association says depression is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel the way you think, and how you act. The Mayo Clinic says this, depression is a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest of things and activities you once enjoyed. Amongst the medical community, you'll also find the term major depressive disorder or clinical depression. Not sin, but illness. And this has been so readily, so readily and widely accepted and unquestioned that I fully expect to get pushed back. I, I do what I have to say. But it's just a matter of science. This is just a matter of fact. That for someone to question it, you know, they're just simply due to ignorance and foolishness. It's just, it's just a denial of the wise advancements that mankind has made in science and technology. But let me submit to you the real the real foolishness here is the blind ignorance that seeks to dismiss, dismiss the living God as the architect and creator and sustainer of all lives, all human beings, to disregard His work and seek to explain with authority man's condition and solution to that condition independent of God. That's foolishness. The last thing, brethren, we want to do as Christians 
is lay our confidence and hope upon the foundation of broken, depraved human wisdom. There's a brother that, that I appreciate. He's, I've learned from over the last couple of years that prefers not to even use the term. And uh, in fact, he doesn't use it because of how it's so been utilized and commandeered by medical professions, professionals, particularly in the field of psychology, who only view this as a mental disorder and disease and nothing, nothing related to our fallen nature. I agree with him, but since it is such a prevalent word in our day and widely used, I'm not afraid to use it. However, I'm purposing to use it in this message in a fashion that would reflect a biblical-defined use of it, not a medically godless use of it. And when I say godless, I mean just that. The use of depression in professional circles where they do not even take into account the reality of God in spiritual life. Not, Not at all. You won't find that. It's void of God, void of the fall, void of sin, and consequently void of providing any kind of biblical solution related to our fallen condition. It just simply seeks to manipulate molecules with the use of chemicals to achieve some some removal of symptoms. Not really deal with the root of the problem. Just remove some symptoms of the problem which... uh, oftentimes creates more and worse problems. But you don't hear too much about that. And let me just say here, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting there aren't physical conditions that certain people are predisposed to, that serious problems in which medicine can aid individuals. Absolutely, that's true. Praise God for that. I believe that's true. But the percentage of such people is so few. Not a third of the population, I can tell you that. There's a reason why mental health drugs is a $16 billion industry. And, and the scale of its growth is, is very eye-opening. It's not because millions of people need them. It's because millions of people make it very, very profitable. Here's the problem, you see, once you open the door to, to help those who seriously need it due to a genuine physical condition, well, suddenly it becomes quite, quite easy to help others, especially when that help of others lines my pocket and helps me build a very lucrative multi-million dollar industry. You see, depravity finds many avenues of enterprise even at the expense of damaging people, and it's damaging millions of people. Pulling away from the medical community for a moment, um, there still is a general use of the term depression. And, and, and it somewhat reflects the state of being that the Bible actually refers to. Dictionary.com, for example. It says the, a condition of general emotional dejection and withdrawal sadness greater and more prolonged than that warranted by any objective reason. It's actually a pretty good definition. Merriam-Webster's says as a state of feeling sad, low spirits, melancholy. That's what the old Puritans would call the term. Specifically, 
Webster says. Now you're going to hear some, some of their infusion of medical diagnosis. A mood disorder that is marked by varying degrees of sadness, despair, loneliness, that is typically accompanied by inactivity, guilt, loss of concentration, social withdrawal, sleep disturbances, and sometimes suicidal tendencies. My Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, uh, printed in 1944, I like to keep that guy around. You know what? You look this word up online, it's, these, these definitions are listed right up at the top. My Webster's 1944, this is the seventh definition under depression. The seventh. An abnormal state of, of inactivity and unpleasant emotion. Nothing about disease, nothing about disorder. The term had yet to be fully hijacked at this point in history. It would come shortly after. But did you notice the Merriam-Webster definition mentions guilt? Found that interesting. Guilt in, in, in describing a potential cause to depression. And that's something modern professionals seek to completely eradicate out of the equation of their vocabulary. In fact, they make great efforts on the front end of their counsel. If they even give counsel, if they don't just get out their pad and write you a prescription, and the front end of their counsel, they're going to dismiss this whole idea of guilt. They'll seek to blame shift the problem from you to everything and everyone around you. And, you know, and the most famous classic uh, approach is, you know, it's your parents. Obviously, your parents are the target. They're the blame. They're the problem. You've got these scars from childhood. And, and why? They do this. They do this to remove any sense of guilt because they don't want... They, they have no capacity. Sin's not in the equation. So how can you have guilt when there's no sin? Sin doesn't bear on depression at all in their minds. And let me just further say at this point, kind of getting ahead of myself now, but brethren, I marvel. I really do. I marvel at professing Christians who run to lost psychiatrists and psychologists looking for answers related to their minds and the way they think and how they feel. That just blows me away. Lost carnal humans who make conclusions based on studying the human mind built upon a premise that there's no God and that we're not made in His image and that His Word has nothing to say about it and whatever His Word says is just fiction anyway. They were just a bunch of walking molecules that just need to be properly aligned or suppressed or energized. That just honestly blows me away. The Puritans rightly understood depression to be primarily a spiritual issue. They were physicians of the soul. And there's a Puritan paperback, if you don't have it, lifting up for the downcast. I mean, just talk about a spiritual surgery. Of course, one might quickly say, well, they, they were ignorant. I mean, they just lacked enlightenment. They weren't afforded these great technologies we have today. Of course, assuming those to be God-breathed. Sadly, even many who call themselves Christian psychologists are simply more nothing more than blind apologists or blind disciples of Sigmund Freud, spouting and spewing his philosophies 
and, med- and, and handing out medicine and dependent upon that and not the Holy Spirit. This is an epidemic in modern Christianity. Brethren, without question, your first response to any kind of depression should be seeking help from Scripture, from God Himself who made you. And from those who know that Word and teach it. Not those who simply bear the title of professional so-and-so. Who actually, actually defy and deny the God who made them. That should really be a no-brainer for Christians, but we, this is such as the day in which we live. really is sad to see. So returning to the definition here, I'm going to use the word depressed, but not as a disease or disorder. I'm going to use it how the Bible presents it to us. And in the text before us, it would be in these words translated cast down in turmoil in verse 5. And in verse 11, it's repeated again. And then Psalm 43.5, we find it Psalm 43.5. And in some ancient manuscripts, Psalm 42 and 43 are combined into one psalm. Clearly, clearly the tone and subject matter are the same. So we have three times this phrase is repeated for us in the span of 12 verses. The Hebrew word for cast down means to sink down. Derived from a word that means to bow down. The New Testament equivalent, top inus, which shows up as downcast, translated as downcast, is translated as humility, lowly. It means to lie low, not rising far from the ground. To be of low degree, essentially to be brought low in grief. Our Hebrew word here for cast down only appears in these verses I just mentioned and in Psalm 44 also. Verse 25 where it says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. And that verse actually serves as a, as a good literal definition to what it means to be cast down. But this term further takes shape by the context of its use. Look with me here at the text, Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? What is the psalmist expressing here? He's expressing this excessive sorrow and grief over the absence of God in his life. Lord, where are you? Where are you at? And then he starts doing some reminiscing in verse 4, which we'll come back to. But this thirsting for God, this reminiscing, it produces this question within himself that emerges in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why, why am I depressed? Why am I, why, is this excess, why am I in this excessive state of sorrow and grief and dejection? This kind of just this gloominess that's over me? Why am I in this state of being dejected in spirit? This is our term 
depressed, biblically defined, an excessive extended state of feeling dejected, downcast, discouraged, despondent, a feeling of just being in hopeless despair. And hear me, this can very well be a normal experience for, yes, even a Christian. Normal experience. I'm not saying it's a good, it's a good state to be in. And I'm not saying it's a God-honoring state to be in. But I am saying it's part of living our lives out in this fallen flesh. Now, it's, it's not a state to welcome. It's not a state to befriend or sort of grow accustomed to and resign ourselves to. Oh, I'm just this kind of person. You know, I'm just, this is my lot in life. I'm a depressed person. You know, I'm just, I just got this melon pot collie depressed disposition about me. And, you know, what was me? No, not at all. But I think it's important to state that it's very possible due to dwelling in this fallen flesh to be depressed, to engage it to confront it, for it to be a reality that springs up. I want to point that out because I'm convinced that one of the damaging effects of the popularity of clinical depression as an illness is it feeds into this false utopian mindset that has so saturated our culture as, as, as fallen human beings as we seek to pursue everything in this life to satisfy us but Jesus Christ. I mean, this consumer, I want now, I can have now, and I will have now. That's where we are today. And we do that in far more ways than we're even aware of. I want something to eat, I'm going to the fridge. I want something right now, I'm going to order it on Amazon. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to talk to somebody, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call them on the phone, I'm going to text them. I'm, I'm, I want information, I'm going to get on the internet. We're just so used to now, 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 now. So when it comes to depression, I want rid of it now. Gone. Be out of here. I don't want to deal with it. All of our advancements are not such a benefit, brethren. Consequently, we run into something like depression. We just want an instant out. Just, just to, by Georgia, if a, if a pill can do that for me, I want it now. Can I get it, can I get it next day? How about in two hours? Give me the pill. I want to get rid of this thing. If someone even sniffs of depression, the, the answer today is not for people to work through it. Not, to people, not for people to learn from it. Not for people to grow and learn something about their God and about themselves. The answer, no, we just whisk them off to the doctor, you see. He'll prescribe you a prescription and it'll just be gone. Just get it out of here. Don't look to God. Don't lean on God. Don't wrestle with God. Don't wait upon God. Oh, but, but for sure, don't trust Him. We got men that call themselves pastors that think this way. It's grieving to my soul. It ought to be to all of us as Christians. Trust the quick remedy. That's the answer. That's the American answer. It is. It's got to be. And you hope it'll be a remedy. You hope it will. And not simply a masking of something that's far deeper. Or some chemical experiment that actually ends up making you worse than you previously were. Which there's plenty of testimony that will tell you that's the case. I, and I find this, this problem not so much in the age, aged community, but this generation, as we call it, Gen Z. 
a generation that has been groomed to glory in its brokenness. Of course, independent of any spiritual context there. A generation who's seeking to find its identity in its, in its victimhood. Some kind of victimhood. Looking to find something to blame its misery upon other than its own sinfulness. And our world is ever so quick and ready to aid them in this process. Oh, brethren, let it not be you and I doing that. Listen to me. Depression is normal. It is. Anxiety is normal. These are normal responses to life experiences of fallen flesh. Jesus would not have spent a significant amount of His Sermon on the Mount on anxiety if He thought this was not something His people were going to have to deal with and seek to overcome by His grace. If depression was simply an illness, Jesus would have taken care of it as He was in, taking the line of all the people who had diseases, right? If it was an illness, He would have, he would have healed them. But it wasn't. He taught on it because it's reality that we face, that we live with. It's not an illness. We would not have scriptural examples of depression and spiritual solutions, scriptural solutions to it. So let's settle this once for all. It is normal. It is a normal thing. However, they are sinful reactions that need biblical solutions. And the Lord gives us really very early examples of depression, even in the example of Cain, right? What was, it, what was said of Cain? It says, the Scripture says, his face fell. He was cast down. He was cast down because God didn't receive his offering like he received his brother's. He was depressed about this. He stewed over it. and It left him adrift from God. And God warned him, be careful. Be careful, Cain. Sin's crouching at the door. It's going to pounce on you. It's going to own you. You need to think right right now. And yet he didn't. He didn't respond to God's reproof. He hardened himself in this disposition of his despondency. And it resulted in murder. You might say, well, yes, brother, that's... <laughs> What hope is there in that? That man's hopelessly lost. He wasn't a Christian. He, he wasn't. But he is one example that, of one who was estranged from God, which started with this dejected feeling, which he failed to properly address. But we are not short in Scripture of God, God-fearing examples of men who are in depressive states. The prophet Jonah, right? There he sat, all dejected and depressed because he was not satisfied with God's program. He couldn't find any satisfaction in the mercy that God was showing to other people. I mean, this is one of God's people who, 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 he, who was a recipient of mercy himself, but he couldn't stomach the fact God was going to show mercy to the Ninevites. So he sits there and he pouts in this depressive state under, the, uh, in, in, under this, gourd, this uh, shade that God had given him, and he, God shrivels that up and... Then he starts having all these suicidal thoughts. I don't know. He says he wants to die. He wished himself dead. That's pretty depressing, right? <laughs> and he expressed that multiple times. He was in a miserable state. Elijah in like manner, right? Elijah, of all things, he just finishes witnessing the power of God come in just a marvelous display of 
showing up and silencing the, the mouths of the, ba- of, of the Baal worshipers who are cutting themselves, dancing all over the place, bleeding all over the place. God comes down in power and everybody falls on their face and says, He is God. And right after this happens, Jezebel says, I'm coming after you. You're going to pay for this. And what does Elijah do? He runs off. <laughs> he runs off in the wilderness and decides to pout under a, a broom tree of all things. As if, as if the God he just witnessed come down from heaven and, and, and put on the display that he put on defeating these prophets of Baal, he, as if God could not deal with Jezebel. Amazing, brethren. It's amazing how quickly we can be moved off truth and become a prey to our own emotions. There he sits all depressed. Woe is me, Lord. Poor me. I'm no better than my fathers. Lord, it's just enough. Just kill me. Just end my life. I mean, you hear that? Two prophets. Two prophets wanting to die sitting in this depressed state. I mean, were there suicidal thoughts? I don't know. They wanted to die. Clearly, they were expressing they preferred death. Sounds rather demonic to me. But there are more examples. David, David in Psalm 32 and 38, David expressed his depression, this depressed state prior to being repentant. We'll look at that in a moment. I talked about Jeremiah last week. Somehow he was able to avoid this, but he was a man of sorrow. But godly sorrow, you see, does not equate to depression. He wrote a book called Lamentations. It's not a book called Depression. There is a place for lamenting. There's a place for lamenting the state of this world. There's a place for lamenting the state of the church. There's a place for lamenting the state of our, our lost loved ones. There's a place for lamenting our own, our own soul at times. Our own failures. But that's not depression. Nor does it need to result in depression. And no, no doubt, Jeremiah had to fight that reality in, in, in what he was surrounded with. And he did so. Remember, we looked at that verse in Lamentations 2, 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies. He saw God's mercy through it all. Depression is a reality that needs to be combated, brethren. But we need, the right, we need to combat it with the right kind of weapons. The Apostle Paul says in his second letter to to Corinthians, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And later on, in that same letter, he says, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. This guy was setting up for full-blown depression. (laughs) We were afflicted at every turn. No rest, no sleep, fighting without fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. Paul faced depressive circumstances. He encountered it, but he did not stay in it. And he did not stay in it because God comforts the downcast. God delivered it, delivered him from it because he took his depression to the Lord. He didn't run over to Dr. Luke and say, Dr. Luke, you got some pills I can take? He sought God's help. He leaned fully upon his God. 
This is a good segue into our text. I want to deal with this under three headings. Three headings from three verses here in Psalm 42. Three ways to handle depression. Number one is found in verse 5. Rest your faith in future grace. Resting your faith in future grace. Not not your current disposition. Not your current situation. Verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's asking himself that because it was real. Psalmist here is an emotional mess. We we looked at it briefly, but look again in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. So here's this child of God. He's so distraught about his situation, he's lost his appetite. I mean, his food, as it were, had been his tears that he has shed under this forbidding, this foreboding feeling of being abandoned by his God. He's searching for him. He's asking for him. Lord, where are you? I'm thirsting for you like a deer thirsts for water. Lord, where are you? People were asking him, where's your God? I mean, why were they asking him this? What would prompt people to say, where's your God? Well, as a parent by his depressive state, listen, when people are oppressed, you can see the body language oftentimes. This depressive state of being he was in, it was, it, was, it was apparent that the joy he was experiencing previously was now absent from his countenance. And what was this joy? Well, he goes right into remembering it there in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I mean, what an image here. He's projecting his state of mind to be such as he compares it to, to some liquid or, or water being poured out of a vessel. Just this pool of hopelessness, pool of hopeless, unstable condition. Then he starts thinking back, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's remembering the brighter days, these days where he was, he was praising, these days where he was filled with joy and rejoicing in the house of God. But now it's gone. It's all gone. Nowhere to be found. He's distraught. There seems to be just this gloomy cloud just hanging over his head, blocking his view of God, weighing him down, distorting his mind. What's the cause? We're not told. Well, we're given a hint. It's in my third point, but. But let me just make this as a sub-point to point number one here. What causes depression? What causes it? The truth is we don't always know. I mean, it can, it can be triggered by all kinds of things. It can be triggered by what you eat, your diet. It can be triggered by, by stress. It can be triggered by the weather. It can be triggered by a lack of exercise or a traumatic event that happens in your life. It can, it can be triggered by demonic oppression. Oftentimes is uh, finances, failure. Could be, it could be a genetic disposition. And even a side effect from other prescriptions unique problem in our day. And yet it could very well be, brethren, and oftentimes is, sin. Sin that has been unconfessed. Sin that has been buried. Sin that has been covered in the darkness and unrepented of. In fact, we had a doctor visiting with us here last week and I asked him about depression. 
And he said, uh, he said he's found this not always to be the case, but far too frequently he's found that patients who express dep- depression, it is because of undealt with sin in their life. And oftentimes it has to do with bitterness and unforgiveness. Deeply rooted, deeply buried. We certainly find that to be biblical teaching, right? Turn, turn to Psalm 32. I said we'd return to this. David gets very descriptive of the physical ramifications he suffered when concealing his sin and, and remaining in this unrepentant state. He begins speaking of the great... First, first off, he begins this psalm to speak of the great blessing of experiencing forgiveness. And Paul even quotes him in Romans 4. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Oh, Hallelujah! Christian, that right there, I'd bust anybody out of depressive state right there. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and sin is covered. And how is that so? Through the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing you do. Oh, it's glorious, David. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whom, whose spirit there's no deceit. And now he gets into the deceit that he was in. He does a little backtracking. For when I was when I kept silent, oh, I was hiding my sin. When I kept it silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, the Lord's hand, that is, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is describing a very depressed state of being, and it was brought on by his sin. My bones wasted away, groaning all day, he says, bearing and feeling this heaviness. And his strength was, his strength to fight it off, it was just shriveled up. He had no strength to fight it off. Proverbs 28 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. You can mark it down, matter of fact, that is a true statement from God. But he who confesses and forsakes them, will obtain mercy. That's what David expresses at the beginning of the psalm, the mercy that he experienced. But you see, our well-being cannot prosper when we're holding on to sin. It's, it's a spiritual rule that you just cannot break. It's a certainty. When we refuse to bring our sin out to the light and deal with it before God, when we keep it tucked away, thinking that's going to make it better for us. That's the foolishness. That's the deceitful part of it. David says there's no deceit. He goes right into the deceit. What was the deceit? He was thinking as long as he kept this thing buried, hidden from everybody, not countable, not own up to it, pretend that oh, it, was a bad, it was a bad idea, it was a bad night, it was wrong. Just pretend like it never happened. Wrong thinking. We must expose it and deal with it. Sins that remain covered in the dark foster the kind of misery that breeds depression. Look at the shift David makes in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Clearly, the context here suggests this prayer David speaks of is a prayer of repentance. Confessing our sin to God, seeking His forgiveness. And when we do so, the, the deluge, these great waters, they will not, these great waters of depression will not overwhelm us and consume us. God will deliver us from such. 
This psalm in Psalm 38, which we won't turn to for the sake of time, both set forth this deep burden and and the physical impact that arises in a Christian's life because of sin. Now, as I said, many things, not just sin, many things can result or can can lead to depression. But brethren, we best not be the ones who allow the things we can control to be the reason for creating depression. And sin is one of those. Sin is one of those factors we control and are accountable for. But outside of sin, I I, I don't think Scripture is overly concerned about what causes depression as it is providing a solution to it. And this text before us as an example, is it's more aimed at the solution to depression than the cause. Yeah, yes, I think it does provide a clue. We'll get to in, 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 in point three. But the overwhelming point is the solution to being cast down. Scripture does, I hope you're convinced of this. I mean, I'll be echoing Jane, uh, Jeff in, to some extent here. Scripture does provide us everything we need in this life. It provides us answers that we need for life's experiences. We've got to be convinced of this. We have to bank our souls on that. Scripture is sufficient for all my spiritual, all my emotional needs. Do you believe that, Christian? I hope you believe that. Do you know what the revered Martin Lloyd-Jones said? He who was a doctor and a pastor, an accomplished one at that, in both in both both of those professions. He said the number one cause of depression is the ignorance of Scripture. That's spoken from a man who understands the nature of the problem and the sufficiency of God's word to deal with the problem. He further says, if a man does not spend time in Scripture, he is bound to be depressed. He's bound to fail. He's bound to be miserable. So says the doctor. The truth is, brethren, we all just tend to live our lives. We're just far too feeling-oriented. We are. I'm not confess I am. When we're called as Christians to live by faith, not feeling, not thoughts or opinions of myself or thoughts of opinions of other people, live by faith. And I feel like that's just such a common phrase. I feel like Christians know it to be an oft-repeated phrase or a quote from Scripture. We read it today in 2 Corinthians 5, right? And most Christians hear that. They wouldn't disagree with it. But do they actually understand what it means? They hear, walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, it's biblical. Amen. But it really doesn't make any practical difference in their life. They fail to connect the power of that reality to their life. I mean, what is it to actually walk by faith? It's not just walking down the street here. I've got faith. What is it to walk by faith? It's to really, truly live your life trusting God for everything. And truly trusting what His Word declares to us. And that Word becoming the bank of our confidence. 
the foundation of our trust. That being the filter for which all life flows to us. Not the circumstance, not how it makes us feel, not the consequences, but anchoring our trust in God and His Word. You see, when there's a debate inside you about how you feel and what God says, God wins. He's got to win every one of those debates. Everyone, submit to God and His Word. God must win the day. Notice here, despite this this downcast position the the psalmist finds him in, he's not hiding it. He's letting us know full out this is where he's at. Notice his determined refuge though. He, I mean, he answers his own question about being downcast in a turmoil immediately with this statement, hope in God. When all hope is lost, when your strength is dried up, when your lot produces this intense groaning and sorrow, maybe like Jonah and Elijah, you just want to die. You don't see any point in living. You feel like committing suicide. There's no soundness in your flesh. That's what David says in Psalm 38. You feel utterly bowed down within and hopeless despair. The psalmist says, no, 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 no. Hope in God. Hope in the One who saved you. Hope in the One who's given you life. Hope in the One who's the God of all hope. The psalmist is in a miserable state, but he's actually walking by faith here, not by sight. I mean, how do we know that? Uh, look where his trust is anchored. He's placing his hope in God. And carefully notice the remainder of that phrase, for I shall again praise Him. What is he doing but putting his confidence in future grace that God will grant him? I know Piper wrote a book, book Future Grace. I've never read it. I don't even actually know what it's about. Maybe he, maybe he refers to this psalm. But I like that term. That's what he's doing. He's trusting in the future grace that God's going to give him to praise him to return to the state he was in verse 4. He's confident of that. Here's a man who feels isolated from his God. He feels cast down. Maybe he doesn't even want to go to bed. Or maybe he just can't get out of bed. He feels no purpose. What's the point? I'm useless. Yet even as he feels this way, he doesn't resign all hope. He doesn't run to man to find help. He disregards what his emotions are telling him. And he stirs up within truth for his faith to lay hold of. Truth about God. His trust is in the integrity and character of His God. Back in verse 4, he's reminiscing about these days when his heart was filled with praise and worship. Here in verse 5, he's realizing this, his, his current plight is not that. He doesn't throw in the towel. But instead, he anchors his hope in, in the God of hope who has never failed him, nor will he, as he, as he himself has repeats this three times in 12 verses. This exact same truth. A trifecta antidote for depression. Hope in God for I shall yet again praise Him. Jesus did the same thing, did He not? Imagine being the Christ subjected to this fallen world. Just sin is surrounding. And you can see into the hearts of human beings can you imagine? I mean, his disciples woke up and had some probably terrible thoughts. Jesus knew them. 
He was subjected to that his whole life. A man of sorrows, you better believe it. And the trials he was put in, in the, in the last days, in the last hours, the Bible says, you know how he endured it? You know how he got through it? He didn't succumb to the emotions he felt. You know how he got through it? The joy that was set before him. The future. His, his confidence was in what he was going to inherit and, what, and the realities he was, going, he was about to, in, to, to inherit himself. Well, how about the second way to handle depression? Verse 6, rehearse God's previous deliverances and help. Remember, Just remember God, who He is. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. And this point kind of bleeds into the previous point because we've already pointed out verse 4 where the psalmist is reflecting back on a previous time when he experienced this exuberant joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy he experienced in the midst of God's people worshiping. A time of shouts and songs of praise. But he goes on to remember God. See, the temptation here is, is to be just further distraught by the lie. Well, I mean, if God's so powerful and God's so loving, and you know, I would not be in this state. Right? That, that's the lie from the devil. I mean, what's going on? I mean, has he forgotten me? But you see, the, the psalmist doesn't take that bait. He doesn't take it. He said, instead, he remembers, he remembers the moment of moments of praise and joy, and he remembers his God. Now he is in a moment of sorrow and depression. I mean, this is a moment. You know what? Moments pass. But God does not. We are fickle, but God is not. We're just all over the place, up and down, and in this kind of this constant flux. God is not. He's the immovable, immutable God. And so the psalmist anchors his faith in this immutable God who changes not and has promised to uphold those who put their trust in Him. And so he rests his faith in future grace and bolsters it by remembering God's previous deliverances and help. Therefore, I remember you from Jordan, from Hermon, from Mount Mizar, all these remembrances of the past of God showing Himself faithful to Him. Looking, he's looking forward and He's looking backward. And He realizes this, this moment, it's a moment. It's gonna, this too will pass. So I'm going to anchor my hope in the rock of my salvation. Not my moment here. Right there in the context of lost joy where a sense of God's presence is nowhere to be found. What is the solution? What do we find the psalmist doing here? He starts speaking truth to himself. He starts preaching to himself. That's what he's doing here. He's got nowhere else to turn. No one seems to understand his case or is able to help him. In fact, it seems that people are mocking and laughing at him. But rather than focusing on the mockers or his wayward feelings, it's like, it's like he takes himself by the spiritual collar and says, listen up. Listen up. Why are you cast down? Listen up. Hope in God. Hope in God. You will again praise Him. You will. Brother, we need to remember that. 
We need to remember what we know about God. Be gone unbelief. We sing that song. My Savior, our Savior, your Savior is faithful and true. He doesn't leave His own. He doesn't forsake His own. He said He'll be with us always to the end of the age. His love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Right? In fact, each Ebenezer I have in review, I'm looking back, I'm reviewing, confirms His good pleasure to help me quite through. That's right. God, brethren, even in our lowest spots, God is building new Ebenezer for you. Another stone of remembrance. Of remembering His help. I'm going to recall his, his, I'm going to recall his deliverances of time past. That's what the psalmist is doing here. I, I will praise him again. I will because of who he is. I will because of his proven past. I will because I am his and he is mine. Lloyd Jones says in his book, Spiritual Depression, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. You might hear that and say, what? Isn't that double talk? Essentially, what he's saying is we need to start talking to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. We need to get direct with ourselves instead of allowing how we feel to dictate our thinking and responses to life. We, we, we do. We sometimes have to have a stand before the mere moment and get real with ourselves and say like the psalmist says, self, why are you cast down? You have no reason to be cast down. You have a faithful God who's rescued you, who's given you His Son, who's given you eternal life, who's given you all the promises, yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We need to get to the root of the matter and start asking ourselves questions and answer those questions not with our mind, but the truth of God's Word. Preach truth, brethren. Preach truth to yourself. Don't coddle yourself with woe is me's. That's not going to help you. Listen, self-pity never helps a person. It doesn't. It might feel good for a moment, but it never helps an individual. Truth helps you. The need of the hour is addressing our souls and equipping our souls with truth. And it might hurt. Just like it might hurt if you go to the doctor and get the cancer cut out of your body. But you know what? It's going to save your life. But if you just account this truth talk and just this just becomes a bunch of cliches and you know Christian familiarity and just a bunch of spiritual babble that's really no, nothing foundational for my help. And if, if you consider it that way, you won't be helped. You really won't. See, our flesh doesn't like the, that kind of counsel. Well, I got to, I got to dig in God's word. I got to lay hold of something God said. Hey, we prefer something. You know, far more tangible and easy to do. You know, take a pill. I, I don't want to deal with myself. I mean, I just don't want to address myself. I don't want to argue with myself. I don't want. Yeah, you know, I don't want to cause myself to align with something else, some truth. I just far more. We're just far more inclined to pamper ourselves than we are to correct ourselves. And again, I, I don't want to paint with 
too broad of a brush here because I think there can be some level of exception. There can be true physical conditions that can be aided by medicine, but I submit to you that's not most often the case. And I fear as soon as you make the, the mention of exceptions, people just run right to the exceptions. That's how we are. That's, what, that's, that's how our fallen, our fallen flesh loves that. Give me the, the path to least resistance, the easiest route. Give it to me. I want it. I'm taking it. And I fear modern Christianity is replaced have faith in God with have faith in a prescription. Essentially, place your faith in prescription and not God, which ends up minimizing the work and person of Jesus Christ. And I find this to be a growing trend that really concerns me as a pastor. When someone gets into a mental, when someone gets into a state of depression, what are they looking for? Who and what are they running to? Are they doing like the psalmist here? But brethren, we either believe God is working all things for our good. I mean all things. Or he's not. The Bible doesn't say he works most things, some things. All things, every single thing, every state of being, every thread and fiber of providence that enters into your life, all things He's weaving together for your good. And when we look for an easy out, when we're in the midst of a fiery trial, I'm afraid we're forfeiting the opportunity to prove God's faithfulness to us. And it's in the proving of God's faithfulness, brethren, that your faith is made stronger. Your walk with God goes deeper. Because then you can boast how God picked you up out of that. The person who runs to the doctor, they're not boasting about God. How are you going to boast in God delivering you? You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to work through it. It was no trial. The Lord puts us in such trials because He wants us to fight through it to fight through such difficulty, to discover things about ourselves, to discover things about how wonderful He is and faithful He is and powerful He is and how dependent He is and teach us how to live in light of eternity and not get so deeply rooted in this world. Things no book's going to teach you. Things that no pill's going to teach you. Things that nothing else but His custom-designed providence is going to teach you. Things that are actually designed to cause you to do what the psalmist says here. Praise Him yet again. I'm going to praise Him again. Things He's going to do to bolster your confidence in Him. That's, that's what I want for the people of God. I, I want their comfort, confidence bolstered in Him and Him alone. Brethren, don't rob yourself of that. Well, lastly, a way of dealing with depression, first of all. Uh, thirdly, recognizing the work of the enemy. We've got to live our lives recognizing we have an enemy. Verse 9b, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist seems to answer his own question with, with his own question. He answers the question here. He's mourning because why? Because there's an enemy oppressing him. Oppressing his mind. Brethren, we have a real enemy who is ever seeking to derail us from Jesus Christ. We, we, we know it. We know it theologically. 
We need to realize it experientially. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We, we deal, we talk, we converse, we engage with flesh and blood. But oftentimes behind that flesh and behind that blood is a kingdom that is opposed to you. That is seeking to get you, your faith, off the living Christ. To keep us from trusting Him. To keep us from rejoicing Him. To keep us from following Him. He is a roaring lion, Peter says. Seeking to devour, seeking to slander God's people. He's real, and he's a liar, and he's a father of all lies. And he will gladly assault you and ensnare you, Christian, with lies of hopeless oppression and despair. Lies that would seek to convince you that God has just forsaken you altogether. There's just no hope in this thing. We need to realize this. We need to recognize that that's what's happening. He comes at the weakest moments. Listen, when a, when a child of God is in a state of depression, they're most vulnerable to the devil. We need to, we need to be aware of this. This came up really last week in the, in the Lord's table. Even our Lord Jesus knew this. He, he knew what it was like. He knew the moments of weakness. Listen, when He was in that garden on His knees, that was a real request. Lord, is there another way? I mean, all hell was, had broke loose at this point, it, 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 assaulting His soul. He gets on the cross. He, he really was forsaken on that tree to a degree we'll never understand. I mean, what must that have been like? All the enemies of God just chiming and mocking Him as He's there. The, the, the only holy beloved Son Forsaken of God. The psalmist feels some measure of that here in a far less level, obviously. But as a fallen creature of Adam, he feels a deadly wound in his bones, it says there in verse 10. I mean, the taunts are real. The oppression's real. This is really happening to him. This is a real experience. But you know what? In the midst of the experience, the Lord would remind us through the lights of Isaiah, fear not. Fear not, for I am why, for I am with you. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't fear. I'm here with you in this thing. Those are words of certainty. Ours is to trust them and stand firm upon them and wait upon our God. For deliverance. How many times we find that in the psalm? The psalmist is crying out and waiting. Crying out. Making his case known and waiting upon the Lord for help. And you know what the Bible says? They that wait upon the Lord, they will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and they won't be weary. They'll walk and they will not faint. Because God will see to it they don't. And the psalmist is hanging on to such truths here. Look how this psalm begins. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for You, O God. My, my soul thirsts for God. I mean, these two verses of this psalm, I mean, they tend to get brought right out of this psalm often and thrown into songs and they're often quoted and, and oftentimes it's an expression of some high, highly uh, uh, you know, valued spiritual state as though you know i'm thirsty for god you know and i'm just this super spiritual giant and when all actuality the context of these words are coming from the cry of a desperate for a desperate deliverance this man is in spiritual dearth 
Deliverance from a state of depression. When shall I come and appear before God? Lord, where are you at? Where are you at? But know this, Christian, weeping may, it's going to, it's going to come into our life. Weeping, sorrow is a part of life. But weeping may endure. God, God controls how long it endures. It may endure for a night. But guess what? There is joy coming. Absolutely guaranteed there's joy coming. There's a morning of promised joy. And the devil delights in confining the saints to this just hopeless sadness. Brother, we can't be those who are ignorant as we heard in the first hour of his crafty designs. He knows what he's doing. He knows where your weak point is. And he's coming right after it. He knows the weak chinks in that armor and the arrow's going right for it. And one tactic used to counter the devil is precisely what the psalmist does here. He preaches truth to himself. It's truth, brethren, that sanctifies. It's truth that sets us free. It's the resistance with truth that sends the enemy and all his cohorts away from us. It resists him. It's truth. Not our own ingenuity, not our own thoughts, not our own fancy ideas, but truth. Our hope in times of depression must be anchored in the faithfulness of our God, just that we spoke of last week. In the midst of life's troubles, we must, we must direct our burden toward God who has who's already saved us, brother. He saved us and rescued us and delivered us from the worst of pits, the pit of darkness, the pit of absolute, the kingdom of darkness. He snatched us out of that kingdom. And, and guess what? The ruler of that kingdom still wants to come around and breathe upon you and make you feel like you're still in it when you're not. Regardless of our circumstances, we must... Call upon, hope in, and wait on the God of all hope. Trust in Him at all times, you people. One of the psalmists says, He's the Savior, dedicated to save, dedicated to sustain you in every aspect of your life. Oh, brother, we've got to fight against low thoughts of God in our lean, woeful seasons of the soul. Rather, feast Feast ourselves on the fatness of who He is, what He says, what He's done, and how He's proven to be faithful to you over and over and over again. I mentioned when I opened up that lying at the root of much depression is a failure to connect the redemptive atoning work of Jesus and His resurrection to our everyday lives. I think that's true. You see, as I said, Jesus was forsaken of God so that we would not be. He was crushed for our iniquities so that God wouldn't crush us. He suffered the consequences so we wouldn't. God's not seeking vengeance on you for putting you in a season of difficulty. That's not true. Last week, somebody told me they felt like God was mad at them for something they had done in the past. That's why they're going through this trial. That's the devil talking. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. Listen, believer, God loved you when you were His enemy. (laughs) When you were His outright, defiant, disobedient, hell-bent rebel. He died for you and He saved you. 
How is it you would ever be inclined to think he, he doesn't now because you've messed up? Or He's placed you into some furnace of suffering to punish you when in all actuality, it's a, fur, it's a furnace to, to, to purify you, to refine you, to remove the dross and make you shine, to fill you more with, with His Spirit and make you more like His Son. That's what the design is. And He's using things even like depression to prepare us for that eternal weight of glory. It's far beyond our wildest dream. Paul says there's, there's, it's beyond comparison. You can't find a comparison. You see, we get, we get so focused on the now, we lose sight of what we're headed for. For the joy that's before us. I was thinking about this in closing. Just a comparison. It's kind of like, it's like the parent-child. Like the child being us and the parent being God. It's like we're out there playing in the mud. And having a great old time. If you're a boy, you probably liked playing in the mud. And you know, the parent comes and takes you away from there to clean you all up and you're kind of spoiled your fun. What are you doing? I don't like what's happening. Why is this happening? I was, I was enjoying where I was at. Why is this happening now? But the parent's actually cleaning you up to take you to Six Flags. <laughs> but you just don't see it. You don't view it that way. I was going to say Disney, but I'm not going there. <laughs> oh, brethren, we're headed for a Six Flags. <laughs> oh, it's far beyond our comprehension. And there won't be one, listen, there won't be one depressed soul there. Not for a moment. Not for a second. But you know what? We're still in this flesh. I get up tomorrow morning. I, just as much as you, have to fight off depression. But i got to do it with my Bible. I'm not some superhero. not some super spiritual guy. i got to use truth to fight it off. And so do you. God help us. Father, we're thankful we have Your Word. Lord, there are many that don't. So Lord, help us be... Lord, it makes us all the more accountable. Lord, help us Lord, be good stewards with it. Lord, I pray You'd minister to those who are in a season, a low season in their life, who battle with this, Lord, more than they'd like to admit. Lord, I pray that they would find help in the psalmist here and help with Your Word and the promises in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.